Let us pray. Saving Spirit, as you gathered us in the wilderness and led us to a land flowing with milk and honey, gather us before your word and lead us into your wisdom that we might be equipped to follow your Son on this Lenten path. Amen. Our first scripture reading this morning comes to us from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 1, verses 9 through 15. Listen now to God's word for you and for me. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And just as he was coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens torn apart and the spirit descending like a dove on him. And a voice came from heaven, you are my son, the beloved, with you I am well pleased. And the spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. He was in the wilderness 40 days, tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild beast, and the angels waited on him. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came to Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God, and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe in the good news, the word of our Lord. Today's Old Testament reading, our second reading this morning, comes from Genesis, chapter 9, verses 8 through 17. Listen now for God's word to you and to me. Then God said to Noah and his two sons with him, As for me, I am establishing my covenant with you and your descendants after you, and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the domestic animals, and every animal of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark, I establish my covenant with you, that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of a flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the clouds, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh, and the waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. The word of the Lord. I'm a little cheap. We don't have cable TV in our home which means I, for entertainment, I tend to binge watch a lot of shows on Netflix. 
I'm guessing, if I'm honest, I'm not the only one that does this. Well, one of my favorite shows over the past few years has been Veronica Mars, starring Kristen Bell, before she came, became famous for playing Anna in Frozen or Eleanor in The Good Place. Veronica Mars is a young detective with a gift for solving modern-day whodunits, modern-day mysteries. If you don't know who done it, Veronica is the woman you call to figure out who did. Now, a few seasons into the show, a pattern begins to emerge, a pattern that it turns out is probably the driving force of the entire show. In nearly every episode, Veronica's initial assumption, her initial assumption about who done it, turns out to actually be incorrect. The first person she identifies as the guilty party, the adversary in the story, turns out not to be. The Old Testament story we heard today from the book of Genesis is the climax of the dramatic story of what happened when God's anger and dismay at humankind's wickedness compelled God to wipe out humanity with one great flood. You know the story. God is grieved by the cruelty of God's people. God sees Noah's faithfulness and tells Noah to build an ark. Noah's friends think he's a bit crazy. They think he's even crazier when they start putting animals in the, in the ark two by two. But then it starts to rain and rain and rain, flooding the entire earth, killing every living thing but Noah, his family, the animals on the ark, and all the fish in the sea. Now, when you stop for a moment and think about this story, you realize how absolutely horrific it is. And yet we love to retell it, especially to our children. Out of anger, God wipes out all of humanity and then starts over with the faithful few, the end. Only that's not the end. Thankfully, there is more to the story. After the storm, God establishes a covenant, a promise with Noah, his family, and all the living things that will now walk upon the earth from this point forward. After the storm, God makes a promise to never destroy the earth or the people on it or the animals on it again. And to seal this promise and to remind the people of it, God does something beautiful and extraordinary. Listen again to what God says to Noah. This is the sign of the covenant I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the clouds, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember it. Remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. With these beautiful verses... Our ancestors, the ancient Hebrews, did something unheard of up to that point in human history. They described a God who gives up, who hangs up the power to destroy. In ancient mythology, the bow and the arrow were symbols of a warrior's strength and power. 
And yet here the Hebrew people tell the story of a God who chooses to place that power, literally place it, hang it, in the clouds, promising never to pick it up again, never to use that kind of destructive force. This act would be the equivalent to our country shutting down the Department of Defense and ending all wars. Not in some far off date, but right now, today. This is incredible. God gives up God's power to destroy. The God of all creation promises never again to be humanity's adversary. The God of the entire cosmos promises never again to hurt or destroy us no matter what we do. After performing a mass at Central Juvenile Hall in Los Angeles, Father Gregory Boyle spotted a familiar face. It was Omar, a 17-year-old gangbanger who was constantly in and out of a variety of detention facilities. After Father Boyle finished the mass, he noticed Omar trying to get his attention as the guards ushered him back to his unit. After about a half hour of small talk, Father Boyle eyed the clock on the wall and told Omar he was sorry, but he had to go. Why so fast, G? I have an anniversary mass at the cemetery for a homie I buried a year ago, so I gotta go, sorry. Omar stayed in his seat and looked uncharacteristically pensive. Hey, Jesus, he says, can I ask you a question? Sure, Miho, he says, anything. How many homies have you buried? You know, killed because of gangbanging? 75, son, he responds. Damn, G, 75. The young man shakes his head in disbelief and then asks a question. I mean, when's it going to end? At that question, Father Boyle reached out to Omar and held his hands with both of his. Miho, it will end the minute you decide. The moistening of Omar's eyes surprised Father Boyle, and after a moment, Omar took Father Boyle's hands in his own and said, well then, I decide. Did you notice that when Mark retells the story of Jesus heading out into the wilderness following his baptism, he says that Jesus was driven out, immediately driven out, by the Spirit. The same Spirit that baptized Jesus is now sending him out, driving him out into the wilderness, the desert, the wasteland. Why would God do that? Right after telling Jesus he is beloved and loved and claimed by God, why would God drive Jesus out into the wilderness land? As the Spirit led him out into the desert, I wonder if Jesus thought that this was going to be a moment where he could prove himself to God. I wonder if Jesus saw this time in the wilderness as his wrestling match with God to prove himself and to God that he had what it takes. This is, after all, what we often assume to be true for us. A time of trial comes our way, an unexpected suffering, unexpected event, and we frame it as some test or some form of God-initiated rehabilitation. But what if we've got it wrong? 
What if the Spirit sent Jesus out into the wilderness not to test him or to give him a chance to prove himself? What if the Spirit sends him out into the wilderness to help him remember who his real adversary is? Kind of embarrassed to admit it, but a couple of years ago, I spent many valuable hours of my life reading the four books in the Twilight series. Don't judge me, please. I was trying to connect with young people to understand what they were going through. If you somehow missed hearing about the Twilight series, consider yourself blessed by God. The series is about a teenage girl who falls in love with a vampire. Ah! albeit a good vampire who has sworn off human blood and only eats the blood of animals. The books are not particularly well written, and the movies are absolutely painful to watch. But the author, Stephanie Meyer, is now filthy rich because she brilliantly captures the all-consuming passion of young love. There's nothing else like it. Teenagers in love are practically possessed. So much so they can be kind of hard to watch. Their love blinds them to all reason and makes them so vulnerable to being hurt. And as we know, as wise adults, as we have learned the hard way, we know for most of them getting hurt by love is inevitable. Well, if you look closely at the beginning of the Noah story, God acts a bit like an irrational teenager who is ruled by emotions. God is grieved by the behavior of his first love, humanity, and acts compulsively, and I could argue cruelly, because of those feelings, destroying nearly every living thing on earth. But instead of maturing at the end of the story and becoming a more reasonable, a more thoughtful God, God chooses to continue to be ruled by emotions. Only this time, instead of giving in to sadness and anger and rage, God chooses to give in to love. What would it look like for you if you accepted, truly accepted, that God is completely and fully on your side? How would your understanding with God shift, your relationship to God shift, if you remembered God's promise to never again be your adversary? What would change for you if you began to worship the God of the rainbow instead of the God of the flood? Our battle, our struggle, it's not with God. God is not our adversary. God has promised to love us no matter what. You can reject God, curse God, yell at God, deny God, and God will keep pursuing you. You can defriend Jesus on Facebook, slam God on Twitter, and act as if Jesus is the least important person in the world, and God will keep calling you, keep reaching out to you, keep sending you friend requests. It's a little pathetic and a tad bit painful to watch at times, but God loves you and me and the whole world with an irrational love, a love that trumps all logic and reason, a love that God has promised to never turn away from again. We may still want to fight with God, but God is done fighting with us. I think before we learned about God's love and mercy, before we knew that aspect of God's nature, I think most of us either thought God was disinterested in us, just didn't care, 
or that God was really, really angry at us for the way we were living. These two initial perceptions of an indifferent or an angry God got reinforced when we found ourselves in the wilderness, facing unwanted struggle or suffering. Standing in the wilderness that we did not want to enter into, we often cried out to God, wondering if God drove us out there to punish us in some way or to break our spirits in some cosmic battle of wills. We wonder why the Spirit led us there. This is going to make it sound like I only read young adult fiction, but I promise I enjoy other genres. But in the second book of The Hunger Games, when heroine Katniss Everdeen is sent back into the arena where she will have to battle again for her life, her mentor, Hamish, offers one last bit of wisdom to Katniss. Katniss, he says, when you're in the arena, remember who the real enemy is. I believe the wilderness is not some form of punishment or abandonment. It is simply the place when we are, where we are confronted by our true adversary, by the one we should really fear. In the wilderness, our real adversary is anything or anyone, real or imagined, who tells us that we are not good enough for God, that what is happening to us is some form of punishment, that we somehow deserve the struggle we're in, that we are not worthy of God's love, that God would not love us and protect us. Our enemy in the wilderness is anyone or anything real or imagined who makes us forget that we worship the God of the rainbow, not the God of the flood. God's fight with us is over. God has made a covenant with us God has promised to love us with an irrational, illogical love that is no longer tied to our behavior. We may find this to be completely irrational and hard to believe at times, but God is forever and always on our side. The fight is over. The victory has been won. Know this and be at peace. Amen.